All right, good evening, everybody. Tonight we'll be in Acts chapter 6. If you want to turn there in your Bibles, really short chapter. And so we may dive into 7. We may not. I'm not so sure. We'll see how, we, how it goes. But, uh, let's, uh, let's pray before we dive in. Lord, we thank you for your word and this, um, the day we've had. We thank you for it, no matter what kind it was. Um, we know that whether it was good or bad, it's designed to make us uh, stronger, closer to you, either through refreshing or through some fire. And um, we thank you for all of it. Um, help us to walk, whether it's through that valley of death or whether that's on top of a mountain, um, with you, um, with joy, knowing that we walk with you wherever we go. Um, this week in this chapter, Lord, we thank you so much for the encouragement of Stephen. What a blessing he is. What a great example of a servant. Um, and just being used wherever he is, whenever you use him, whenever you call upon him. And what a contrast that is to those we read about last week with Ananias and Sapphira. Lord, uh, we want to be like Stephen. But we know that's a work of your spirit in our lives. It's, it's submission to you. There's a lot of decisions we have to make to have that. Um, there's uh, being a disciple. There's a, there's a constant walk with you, a closeness with you. But when all that's in place, when we're doing what you've called us to do, you use us in mighty ways, and that's, that's what we want. So we thank you for the opportunity to be as close to you as possible and to be used by you as much as possible. In Jesus' name, amen. Probably one of the most important chapters in the Bible for the servant, anybody that wants to be in ministry. There are several scriptures that we'll do some cross-references in, especially in Timothy, where the qualifications of the very people that you would choose to be in leadership or to be in the ministry, they're listed in those places. But this is an actual example of, a, of the heart, which uh, is everything. The heart of the servant is everything to God. Um, capable... And, and I mean by a person who has capabilities or doesn't have capabilities really isn't the issue when God calls someone to serve him. Um, it's about the heart. He can't really being, he will. <laughs> I think of some guys on TV that, that are used by God, but probably aren't real close to God, but God wants to bless people. So he uses the closest tool at hand, but may not be the best tool, but he'll use it. And so that's, that can be the case. But it isn't what he's looking for. God is looking over all the earth. Is there anybody that wants to do my will? Is there anybody that wants to be about my business? Is anybody interested in what I'm interested in? Is anybody excited about what I'm excited about? And he's looking for those people, men and women and children. Anybody. And when he spots somebody like that, who's humble, lowly. You think of Mary. She's a, what a great example of a young gal who's just following the Lord, has heard the stories about the Messiah and so on, but she's the one that gets visited by the angel. She's the one that gets chosen. And um, what a blessing it was to be used by God in that way. Stephen's another great example. Stephen is going to fulfill a need. A need arises in the church and that's how ministries are supposed to start in the church, if you didn't know that. There's a group of people that are doing great, and all of a sudden something's not happening like it should happen, and some people are being left out, or some people don't feel like, um, well, they think they, they'd like more. And so that's when a ministry will rise up to meet that need. We don't make ministries and then hope there's a need for it, you know, build it, and they will come. You know, it's not field of dreams in the church. It's there's a need, I see that, and then God raises somebody up to meet that need and equips them for that. This is what happens with Stephen and six other men. And so we went over last week with Ananias and Sapphira being about the worst example <laughs> that we could have in someone that wanted to serve the Lord. They used their abilities and stuff to manipulate those around them. It's a horrible place to be in when you give or withhold based on your feelings or your emotions. I've 
I've, uh, I grew up in a church like that where if they weren't happy, then they, they just didn't tithe, you know, kind of thing. What a great example Peter gives. Wasn't it yours to begin with? Nobody was asking you for it. Nobody wanted it. Nobody needed it. You're the one that volunteered it up. It's between you and the Lord as to whether you acknowledge and worship him through your tithes and offerings. That's up to you. We don't have anything to do with it. Oh, my dad. (laughs) He was the treasurer, volunteered, smart guy, really smart guy. And he had a problem at one point when they would say, now we need to call these people and find out why they're not giving. And, And the idea was... We need to make sure they're happy. And that's, that was the last time he was the accountant for the church. He says, no, <laughs> I'm not going to call them and ask them for their money or ask them if we can change the church to, you know. Now you know where I get some of my stuff from sometimes, you know. So, yeah, no, no. Oh, you want that? No, <laughs> no. Good example, though. His thought, obviously, was if you don't want to give to God, don't give to God. That's up to you. And that's what Ananias and Sapphira were all about. They were all about letting everybody know how much they gave and withholding or giving or whatever is ugly. Stephen, on the other hand, what a guy. And, and that's just it. If you were to say to Stephen, what a guy, he'd be embarrassed and almost ashamed. He's the guy that would say, what are you talking about? Do you not know what Christ has done for me? Do you not understand that this is the least I can do for God? I don't want accolades. I don't want to be put on a pedestal. I don't want anybody to even notice what I'm doing. I'm doing this because it's an opportunity to give anything I can give back to the Lord for all that he's done for me. This is that guy. What a great example. That humble heart, that saved heart. It's just a born-again person. It isn't unusual. It's not really that unusual. The church back in is full of these people that are just so grateful for what God had done for them. And then opportunities would come up, and they just, oh, of course, you know. That's the way it's supposed to be. And when it's not like that, that's okay too, in the sense that it's a symptom, and it's good to know. It's good to know that that's where hearts are, you know. It shows a direction. It shows a, a, a change that needs to happen. It shows that we need to work on something. Peter, as great as he is, an Ananias and Sapphira story doesn't do so well a few chapters from now. As he shows up and is so excited about all the Gentiles getting saved, and then all of a sudden, James's guys from Jerusalem show up, all Jewish, really good Jewish boy believers, you know. And Peter all of a sudden separates himself from all the Gentiles because he knows to eat with them is to be unclean. And he knows that the Jewish boys back in Jerusalem still follow those rules and regs, and he wants to be in good with them. And so he plays the hypocrite, just like Ananias and Sapphira. Thank goodness he doesn't die like they did. He plays the hypocrite, Paul says. He played the hypocrite. He stepped away from the Gentiles and towards them. And Paul says, and I, and I withstood Peter to his face. So Peter's big fisherman, Paul's little scrawny, you know, bookworm kind of guy. And he's chewing out Peter. I'm sure that's what he sounds like, you know, because he's being a hypocrite. That being said, there, there can be a time and a, a, a moment when our hearts get exposed that you kind of thought that was gone, but uh, it's still there. I mean, Peter, I'm sure he felt horrible about it. I mean, it's probably another rooster crowing three times moment for Peter again as Peter's chewing, or Paul's chewing him out. He's like, yeah, you're right. What a dope, you know, because Peter does much better after that. But you get caught up sometimes, and those are good things to happen in the sense that it exposes our heart. So whether you're an Ananias and Sapphira or in that place in your life, whether you're a Stephen, be encouraged by this. This is what it looks like. This is what it's supposed to look like. Verse 1. Now in those days, when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists, because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, 
whom we may appoint over this business, but we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. A need arises. There's a separation already. There's a complaint about who's getting what from the pool of resources that Barnabas has given into, Ananias and Sapphira gave into, some of it anyway, and everybody else was doing too. And all of a sudden they're like, how come the Hellenists, the widows, which the church is supposed to help with widows, provided they don't have any family members that should do it themselves, that should be taking care of them. Why aren't they getting the daily distribution like everybody else? Is it because they're Hellenists? And it was. And so they're going to pick seven men, and they're going to be Greek Jews or Greek-following Jews is basically what they are. And they're going to do that. They're going to fulfill that need. They're going to pick seven guys that have that background so that that prejudice isn't there, so that they get taken care of. They're going to have their own. The disciples understand that this is important, that this needs to happen. We don't want to have this bitterness, this rivalry, this faction or friction in the church. So they appoint some guys or want people to pick for themselves seven guys. And here are the qualifications that the disciples or the apostles give. We want to make sure that they're full of the Holy Spirit, that they have a good reputation, and that they have wisdom. They're not just smart, not just strong and able to carry you know, meals on wheels to all these uh, widows, but I want them full of the Holy Spirit. That's, that is essential for them to serve. You can't wait on tables unless you're baptized or filled with the Holy Spirit in the house of God. We get into that mode sometimes as a organization, which you can't help, but it is. I mean, you may not want to call the church a company, but it is. There are things you've got to do, make decisions. You've got to budget. You've got to spend money. You've got to receive money. You've got to keep good accounting. You have to, I mean, there's things you got to do. There's purchasing, there's receiving, there's all these things happening. And we don't like to think of it that way. But when you have a, a, a comp, you know, a, a, not a compound, I was going to say complex. I was going to say complex. There's no barbed wire up yet. But when you have something this big or something happening all the time, there has to be some good. That's why the Holy Spirit has one of the gifts is the gift of administration. You've got to have that. But to wait tables in the house of the Lord, you need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. So in other words, when the organization gets to a place where it kind of rolls, it's rolling on its own, and there's some expectations that go along with it, what would happen on a Sunday morning if we didn't have coffee made. I know that you guys, all, they, nobody would come in here. I'm kidding. They'd all be standing there with a styrofoam going, I, I don't know what to do next. <laughs> so coffee, you know? And so you get to that place where if, if, if Denise was gone or whoever else makes coffee, sorry if I don't know your name, but that's good. That means you're just doing it and serving. But uh, um. Eh, filled with the Holy Spirit, not filled with the Holy Spirit. Let's just get somebody to make coffee because it's just coffee. We can get to that place. We can get to that place with children's ministry. We can get in that place with a lot of different things where let's just fill the hole. We got a hole, we need to fill it. Equipped or not, filled with the Spirit or not, and in some churches, saved or not. That's unacceptable. That's unbiblical. And it is a short-term gain because you made it through. You made it through that last or next service because all those holes were temporarily filled, but you, you have no idea what kind of damage you may have done by putting those people in a place who aren't filled with the Spirit, who don't have wisdom, who don't have a good reputation to serve tables. That's to put out forks and to spoon beans onto someone's plate full of the Holy Spirit, good reputation, wisdom. Those are required. These guys know. Now, they have a big pool to draw from, granted. The church is huge. They're adding to the disciples, it says, are multiplying daily. I mean, it is an exploding thing. And even in that explosion, with all the needs and all the thronging of the people and the desires and the voices and the chatter and all that, they still had enough presence of mind, enough wisdom of the Holy Spirit to say, that's great, let's do this got to do it right. The infrastructure is everything. Everything has to be in order. It has to be this way. Or we are going to set ourselves up for a huge, huge problem later on. 
First of all, we know this, he says, we should not stop studying, praying, and getting prepared to teach the Word of God to meet this need. It's prioritizing. The Word of God is everything. And and I think that's what makes ministry really, really easy if you can settle in on it. I think ministry, and Rod, I think, would agree, ministry has been really easy because we've got our circles of priorities. The most important thing that takes place at Calvary Chapel Maryville is that the Word of God is taught at least once a week. That's it. To the adults. That's the most important thing, because the adults can then teach the kids. Like you guys can, are fully capable of teaching your own kids. We've got to get the Word of God out to, the ki- to you guys first and foremost. And if we can do more than that, wow, bonus. If we can do it twice a week, amazing. But if we can't, we're doing it once. We don't fill the hole just to make sure that we can do a Sunday and a Wednesday. We have children's ministry. If we can staff the classrooms with spirit-filled, good reputation, loving, beautiful people that love Jesus Christ and are humble. If we can't, we don't just stick somebody in there. We don't want to anyway. We may have made a mistake in the past or may make a mistake in the future, but that's not our heart. If we don't have enough teachers, then we combine classes. We don't fill holes. We don't just make sure, well, what do you mean we don't have a, afford a, I don't even know the breakdowns anymore. Those guys have been doing it for so long, I don't even know the breakdowns, Rod. I don't have a three to five. Got to have a three to five. Who's going to be the three to five teachers? I don't know. I guess we have three to nine. Because we know we have those teachers. Three to nine, that's too big a spread. Please. 5,000 people on the side of a hill with all the screaming kids and all the women and all the men and all the food and all the passing out and all that stuff, and Jesus still got a pretty good message across. It's okay. We get a little comfortable sometimes. I get calls all the time. You have a youth group? No, we don't. Oh, oh. And they're stunned, you know? And it's like, well, we, we kind of, we do ages all the way up to 12 years old. And then after that, um, we expect them to be old enough at the age of 13 to be able to sit in on the, on the main teaching. I mean, they're, and the reason we do that is because Jesus at the age of, of, of 12 was able to tell all the guys at the temple and teach them, you know, kind of thing. And I think kids rise to the occasion. I think they can sit still and listen. They don't need beanbag chairs and they don't need a room that's been painted fluorescent with black lights just to keep their attention. If that's the case at church, we're in big trouble. If they don't love Jesus yet, that's why they come to church is to learn to love Jesus, not, not for community. Oh, that's a, oh that's, a, that's a horrible thing to say publicly. Community has taken over the church in many ways. Club is another word for community. It's a club. That's where they see their friends. That's where they do their, hey, I'm all for that. I'm all for fellowship. Fellowship is secondary to the teaching of the word of God, to the learning to love Jesus Christ, to coming to church for a purpose. Church is meant, we come here, and kids need to know this, and adults need to know this. We come here not to see our friends, although that may be the case, but they may not show up this week, but to come to worship Jesus, the one who saved you from your sins. That stance, that firmness that we have in that adult Bible study, maybe two adult Bible studies, children's ministry if we can, Camp, great. Men's breakfast, eh, once a year maybe. Women's ministry, once a year maybe. Why? Because those are external, those are circles. Those are things that we can if we can. If we can't, we can't. We can do all those things on our own. Invite some guys and go to Hy-Vee and have a Bible study. Go for it. Invite some women and go over there and have a Bible study. Go for it. There's nothing wrong. Everybody should be studying the Word of God all the time. This is a vitamin pill. We understand that. When you have those circles and you understand your ministry, it's so much easier. You, it does. It ebbs and flows, depending on the season, depending on the, the year for the church. Sometimes we're overrun with 
Sunday school teachers, sometimes we aren't <laughs> overrun. And you just, you contract, or you expand, and you just, you breathe. But you make sure you don't compromise these things. Full of wisdom, full of the Holy Spirit. Good reputation, very important. If you can do all those things, it's wonderful. That is wonderful. But if you can't, it's okay. Average size of a Calvary Chapel is 50 people. You'd never know that. Somebody had to bring that up to Greg Glory one time. Uh, who, no, it wasn't Greg. Who was it? It was one of the big boys. I was at the senior pastor's conference, and he said something at one of the teachings. He says, guys, if you ain't at 250 yet, and you've been doing it for like 10 or 15 years, you guys need to cut and run. <laughs> and what he didn't realize was probably three-quarters of the crowd, he just told to quit. They don't know. They're in these megas. They're in Southern California. You plant a Calvary Chapel flag, and you've got 1,000 people your first Sunday. Just how it is. Calvary Chapel is just really well-known out there. And people want that, and they're hungry, and they're all transient, so nobody's stuck in a denomination because you're in California. You've already picked up, planted roots someplace else. You're kind of free. They're kind of weird. They're it's the land of fruits and nuts out there, you know. And so they don't mind flip-flops, and they don't mind whatever, you know. It's a little different, you know, in 90% of the country other than California. So when he said that, somebody pulled him aside. I'm, I don't know who it was because he changed his tone, and he apologized. Because I don't, I, I don't even know why I said that. I apologize. He says it went really quick for us. This is what happened here and why we grew 10,000 people or something like that at his church. Big guy. And staff and all this. And all the other guys are like, God told me that I'm supposed to go teach a Bible study if there's just one person that shows up. And it was good for all the other guys too. The other guys that heard that needed to say, am I going to listen to this guy or am I going to listen to God? It was really good for them to settle in and say, oh, get a life. And be bold enough with five people at your Bible study to go up to the 10,000-person pastor and say, get a life. Withstand him to his face. Somebody did. And it was good. It is Jesus' church. The Jesus' church is powered by the Holy Spirit. And if you remove the power of the Holy Spirit from the church, it's no longer Jesus' church, it's your church or our church, and we will forever strive to minister. If you've begun in the Spirit, will you now be made perfect in the flesh? You can't. You've got to allow the Holy Spirit to breathe, to let him do what he wants to do. So he's breathing, and this is, a, this is an inhale. They're expanding. And they're taking care of the problem. They're taking care of the need. It's not a problem. It's a good thing. But we need some guys that can do this. But we need to stay with the teaching of the Word of God. Some cross-references. Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. This is the Great Commission. But it goes along with the fact that the apostles thought, and there's no way we're leaving the ministry of the word for these other things. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. I want you to go out and teach. You need to teach people what the Word of God says. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 through 17, Paul writing to the young pastor Timothy, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and thoroughly equipped for every good work. Zeal for God isn't enough. Zeal is important for the Lord, but with wisdom. It's an unbelievable force of God. 
that Holy Spirit working through someone who has zeal but knowledge and wisdom to give out because they've taken the time to study the Word of God, that they're well within the bounds of Scripture, which is the sword of the Spirit. People that say, I like to get outside of God's Word and just experience, you cannot experience God outside of God's Word. It's His sword. That's the sword of the Spirit. That is how He changes lives he cuts between the joint and the marrow, between the soul and the spirit. It's a discerner. And that's what the Word of God does. It gets to our heart. It changes us from the inside. It is the agent of change in our lives. The sword of the Holy Spirit in His hand. In the Holy Spirit's hand, the Word of God is very good. Romans 10, verse 17. So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Oh, God, increase my faith. If I had more miracles, if I saw the Red Sea part, if I saw uh, manna falling on the ground every day. No, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. My faith gets increased the more time I spend in God's word. That's what it's all designed to do. New Testament designed to show us what it looks like and to to give us the facts on how to be a believer in the Old Testament or pictures of all the people doing it. And we read that and we see that and we think of Abraham. We think of the steps that God took him through and we see his whole life laid out before us from Abram to Abraham. And we see all the things God did in his life and it increases our faith that God wants to do the same thing for me. He wants to take me from Abram to Abraham. In Acts chapter 20, verses 26 through 28, we're going to see this later on. Paul is speaking about the word of God. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. It means if anybody's going to hell, it's not because they heard it from me or didn't hear it from me is what he's getting at. I'm innocent of the blood. Those that are going to hell, I'm innocent of that. The converse of that is I am guilty of the blood of people going to hell if I don't do what I'm about to read here. I take it very seriously. The apostles took it very seriously. The teaching of the Word of God, the whole counsel of God, is what keeps my hands clean. It's my mandate from God to do this. Nothing else. I don't have a mandate from God to serve tables and to make sure everybody's not hungry who's sitting in the crowd. So, you know, Sunday school, hey, if we have fishy crackers, we try to do our best. If we're out, they're still going to get the Word of God. And there's a great teaching on uh, fasting. We're going to fast today from fishy crackers because we're out. And man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. There you go. Good Bible study. They'll, oh, that was, they'll never forget it. The Sunday they didn't get fishy crackers, they'll memorize that scripture. And that may come in handy the next time they are, uh, maybe grow up and get married and they don't have any uh, you know, two pennies to rub together. And they're looking at the ramen noodles together. So, but we have Jesus. We have Jesus. That's far more valuable. And they'll remember that. Remember that one time we didn't get fishy crackers? Oh, man. It's like that right now. Here's what he says. He's, this is how he keeps himself innocent. For I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. That was his, Paul's mandate that he received from God, but is giving also at the first leadership conference ever in the Bible history. I didn't shun to give him the whole counsel of God. You don't shun to give him the whole counsel of God. It's everything, the whole counsel of God. It is the bread by which people nourish their souls. And when I withhold that for something else, if I replace the Word of God, the actual sustenance that is going to nourish their spirit with some other gimmick or some other thing, I have starved them. It's like a mother who tries to serve Twinkies for dinner. Oh, I know. Every time, every night, everybody's fussing about hamburger, and they don't like broccoli, even though that's exactly what they're, steak or chicken or whatever you want to feed them. So I'm tired of all the, I, I'm just going to give you what you want. What does everybody want? Skittles. <sighs> Enjoy. I want Twinkies. Do they even make Twinkies anymore? They probably don't. Ever, anybody remember Susie Q's? Those are horrible. <laughs> 
My sister would always pick, Dad was going to get something from Hostess or something. I was one of the fruit pies or the cupcakes. And she'd always say, Susie, can I just look at her? You do know it's like cake without any frosting on top of it. Like you're missing a whole layer. That being said, any pastor that decides not to give out the word of God, which is the absolute most important thing any spirit or soul in this universe can eat and sacrifice it for something else just to please, you're killing your people. You're starving them to death. You're giving them a sugar rush. You're not sustaining them. They have nothing to go off of later on, and it's your fault. Therefore, take heed to yourselves, he says. Give them the whole counsel of God. Paul would sit and teach. Do you remember that poor guy that was up there, and Paul was teaching, and it was like midnight he was still teaching. He'd been teaching all day. And the fumes overcame this kid. He was sitting in the window trying to get some fresh air because they had the lamps going on in the rooms, you know, and all the oxygen's gone. I don't know if they understood that by, back then, you know. <laughs> and this guy passes out and falls all the way down and dies, and they have to go out and resurrect this guy from the dead. A miracle takes place. What do they do afterwards? They go back in and they start teaching again. I mean, you talk about taking it serious. I got people here that look at their watch at 1225. Going kind of long this morning. It's like 10 minutes over. (laughs) I don't know that we would have hung very well with Paul. Can you imagine how glutted you would have been, though, with the Word of God? How full. How over, just, it would consume you. It wasn't an additive to their life. It was everything to them. You know, so that was a really long first four verses, short chapter, long teaching. But isn't it good? I mean, we, it, it brings us home again. It really does. The, people, the children of Israel in the wilderness, and they would wake up at the first day they got manna. Whoa. I mean. It's fluffy, it's light, it's just sitting there, and I pick it up, it melts in my mouth. Coriander seed or something like this. Months later, we loathe this worthless bread. We're tired of the taste. It was absolutely perfect food that they didn't have to work for, and it was available for them every single morning just to go out and grab and eat as much as they could eat for that day. And the next day, they would need some more of that exact same food the next day, and they were healthier than it had ever been before. I bet cataracts cleared up. I bet energy levels were on the rise. I bet everything they ever had needed. This is, I mean, it was a miracle, superfood. But after a while, we loathe this. We wish we had leeks and onions and melons and stuff. You know, We can do that with the Bible. We can do that with the Word of God. Oh, really? Another Bible study. Okay. Is there a book I can read? Is there another book I can read? Of course there is. And there's nothing wrong with that as an additive. There's nothing wrong with putting a little salt on your food or having a little side or a little jello, you know. That's what it is in comparison to God's Word. Any other book that we read outside of the Bible is like Jello, And it's okay. Eat it. Enjoy it. Have fun with it. But don't forsake the main course with the Jello. And the saying, please the whole multitude. Good idea. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith, and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, Timon, Parmenius and Nicholas, proselyte from Antioch, whom they set before the apostles, and when they had set and when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. Then the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. I think that's the reason Dr. Luke here writes that with that and pulls those two together, is because there's a direct result. We took care of it. We heard your need. We understand that they weren't getting fed, taken care of, and they were missing their distribution. We got some guys, your guys, you know, and they're taking care of you, and they're just doing great, and they're full of spirit because there's more going on than dropping off a styrofoam plate for the widow. Meals on wheels, guys. I hope you know that. Here's your food. 
Got to, I don't have time to talk. I got to get going. I got 12 more, got 12 more stops. These are shut-ins. These are people that don't see people very often. These are people that don't. It's okay. At least five or ten minutes. I know you're on a clock, and maybe they've got rules. But be careful that those rules don't, you're defeating the purpose, so we're sustaining them physically, but they're dying emotionally and spiritually. Minister, smile at them, look them in the eye. Maybe you are in a hurry. Maybe you do have other people waiting on you, and they're hungry too, and they need to get to them. I don't know the whole, all the rules and regulations, but this Meals on Wheels in the book of Acts chapter 6, they're full of the Holy Spirit for a reason. They're going to be talking to these women. These widows, they're good little boys that they're going to, you know, get their cheeks pinched and stuff. And they're going to smile through it all. They're going to understand the heart of the woman, and they're going to respect the elderly and honor this woman who's faithful to the Lord and feel a personal responsibility as Jesus looks down and says, Behold your mother to John the disciple. They get that sense. You have a mandate. Behold your mother. Take care of her. Well, I got, yes, sir. You know, they take care of these old women. Wonderful. And then the word of God spread because they're taken care of. These guys didn't leave the studying of the word of God. Priests are starting to figure it out. Hey, this is what the church is always supposed to look like. This is what, this is what serving God is always supposed to look like. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 13, this is the list for elders or deacons in the church. So if you want to serve in the church, I don't mean you get a position in the church because being an elder or a deacon, you don't get a name tag. You don't get your name in the bulletin. There is no, we don't even have a bulletin. You know, you have an email if we get it out. No, these are jobs. These are things you do. These are ministry opportunities. If you're going to be a bishop, if you're going to be an elder, if you're going to be a pastor, all those things are kind of interchangeable in this word. You desire a good thing. It's a good thing to want that. But this is what it looks like. A bishop must be blameless. The husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, able to teach, and I would also say teachable, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetous, one who rules his own house well, having his children in all submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? Because it's a very similar. If you don't know how to take your, raise your kids up in the ways of the Lord, how in the, how in the world are you going to do that for other people? Your, your home is your first flock your first flock. It's the first sheep God ever gives you. You are truly a shepherd and you are a provider for them spiritually. If you can't take care of the first one, two, or three, or four, or how many ever you have, how would we give you more? You're starving the other ones to death. Why would we give you more to kill? You know? They've got to be taken care of. Not a novice. Not someone who's just zealous. That's very important. A novice is a newbie, you know? A novice is someone who's just learning. A novice is an apprentice, someone who's just figuring things out for themselves, haven't really even applied it to their own lives yet. Still working on that. How can you teach other people how to apply it to their lives when you haven't applied it to your life yet? I mean, it goes without saying. But it has to be said, because... Some just think it's a, it's, a, it's a build it and they will come mentality. If I just show up and open God's word, it'll just, amazing things will happen. No, you got to walk with the Lord before you can teach other people how to walk with the Lord. So not a novice, and here's why. Lest being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. You can do harm that way. Oh, but he keeps begging me. He keeps asking me. He keeps saying he wants to be in the ministry. He's not ready. Oh, but he, he really, he really, he really, you give in to that and you say, go for it. Fine. Have it your way. You may kill that kid. You may kill that guy. He may be completely consumed with pride. Walk away from the Lord, ruin his family. I mean, it's, it's a big responsibility. It's not just a, oh, sure. 
What could possibly go wrong? A lot of things can go wrong. He may not know that you're not supposed to do this, that, or the other thing, and may do this, that, or the other thing, and find himself alienated from his wife because there's a pretty girl at the Bible study. It's a dangerous place. Moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside. Who are outside? The world. The world has to see him as a good testimony. He's got, he walks with the Lord. Now, a good testimony doesn't mean they're for him necessarily. It just means that they know that he stands with Jesus. They, oh, oh I can't stand him. He's always talking about God. Oh, that's good to know from a pastor's perspective. I like that. You hate him? <laughs> He's perfect. You're hired. You know, there's some things that some people, <laughs> I think it's funny. If you ever look at Yelp, you ever watch, hey, I'm going to go to this restaurant. Let's see what Yelp has to say. You can see the trolls right away. These are people that write reviews on the restaurant. And so you go to this restaurant, you see five star, five star, five star, one star, five star, five. Okay. What's the one star? I didn't want to pay for my food, and they made me pay for my food, you know, or something stupid like that. I wanted it free. Or, you're ridiculous. I'm definitely going to this restaurant, you know. They're my kind of people. The same way outside in the world. If I got the right people that hate me as a pastor, that's a feather in my cap. And so that's what he's looking for. You have a good reputation? Do you love talking about Jesus all the time? Great. Likewise, deacons. Now, elders and stuff usually take care of the physical or the, the spiritual things. Deacons take care of the physical things of the church. Likewise, deacons must be reverent. So the word likewise means everything we just said for elders and. Now he adds to the list. It must be reverent, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy for money, holding the mysteries of the faith with a pure conscience, but let these also first be tested, and then let them serve as deacons. In other words, a deacon is a deacon before he's a deacon. A deacon deeks. That's how you know they're deacons. They just do it. They can't stand it. They can't stand something not being done. I can't, and they see it. That's the most important thing. For someone to walk in and see something that needs to be done, and not wonder why it's not done, but go do it, that's everything. That's a person that deeks. And they're known for that. And so they see those kind of people and they, oh, yeah, I mean, he's been deaconing before we even laid hands on him to be a deacon. It's, it's a no-brainer. They need to be found blameless. Likewise, their wives must be reverent, not slanderers, temperate, faithful in all things. But, so there's qualifications. If your wife's not there yet, it's really hard for you to be in the ministry because she's doing that. And they see you as this holy guy, but they can't stand being around your wife because she's such a, well meow kind of thing, you know. She's rough. So you got to steer clear. Be careful. So until she's in order, let's, let's hold off on serving tables. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a good standing and great boldness in the faith, which is in Christ Jesus, which we're about to see. Verse 8. And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people then there arose some of those, uh, some from what is called the synagogue of the freedmen, Syrians, Alexandrians, those from Cilicia and Asia, disputing with Stephen. Now that is usually the case. Uh, a man like Stephen who's humble, and we don't hear about the rest of the, the other six, they probably just went on doing what they were doing, but God is moving Stephen up and doing more things with him. While he's serving tables, while he's doing these things, God begins to do other things with him, giving him more faith, increasing his abilities and giftings. And anytime that happens in a person's life, you can plan on that verse uh, 9, then there arose. There will be pushback. They don't care about Stephen any other time until now, until he's being useful and used by God. Satan doesn't pay attention to any of us, really, until we begin to be used by God, and then you can plan on it. Anybody from camp, can you identify? This is one of the craziest kids' camps we've ever had. Lori and Rod will testify to that. So many people, so excited, so on fire, and it's, it's normal. 
And they step out, and all of a sudden, they just get blasted by Satan in all sorts of different ways. They would have never known it was Satan, except for us receiving all the phone calls. We're like a hub. Lori and Rod and I are getting these calls. Hey, this happened. I don't think I can. Okay. Well, that's not unusual. That happens. Twelve different people almost on the same day. I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't. And you saw all these attacks come on the people. And the attack was, I do not want these kids ministered to. How many kids did we baptize? How many kids got saved at camp? How many kids were ministered to? How many people were introduced to Jesus? How many of them got closer to Jesus? Satan doesn't want any of that to happen. So if you volunteer or ask to be a part of that kind of ministry, you can plan on getting punched in the face by Satan. Look for it. And as you grow older in the Lord, sometimes those punches will take you out. That's happened to me many, many times. It's not unusual. It's not a, I'm not putting anybody down for getting taken out. But you learn to take a punch. You learn to kind of expect it. Boxing is hard when you first start. You know? I don't know if anybody's ever learned how to box before. You get in, and you're like this. All right. Like a street fight. Oh, I mean, you're in trouble. Jaws out there. Head's going to go away. You're going to look away because you don't want to get hit, and it just hurts even more when you look away. And all of a sudden, they learn. They put this up, and when you throw your punch, you bring your shoulder across your jaw for good mic effects. No. <laughs> so that if that punch comes from over here, you've got a little bit of a cushion. You're, you're protected. So you throw your punch and get that shoulder up, shoulder up, you know. And all of a sudden, and the more punches you take in the ring, the easier it is to keep your head up. <laughs> Oh, and you can start fighting back, and you're not cowering in a corner like this, just getting pummeled. Every Christian has to go through that. As you step out by faith, you want to talk about a beatdown. Wait till chapter 7 next week. Stephen gets a beatdown, and he wins. He wins. So there arose this stop the work of God accusation against him. They began to dispute with Stephen. Is God so big that he can make a rock? You know, those dumb questions. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. They never can. They never can. Then they secretly induced men to say, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. Liars. No, they didn't. And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him to the council. They also set up false witnesses who said, this man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against the Holy Spirit or this, against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs which Moses delivered to us. And all who sat in the council, looking steadfastly at him, saw his face as the face of an angel. None of it worked. They have to go against everything they're seeing because the accusation does not match up with the testimony. I think that's key for every Christian here. The accusation should never match up with the testimony. Your testimony, your reputation that God has given you is something that people see every single day about you. And to hear that about you doesn't match up. Doesn't line up. That's not what I've seen. And so that's what happens to this poor guy. God has called Stephen to serve, and Stephen has answered the call to do whatever God asked him to do any moment, and he's going to use him to save Paul in chapter 7. The Apostle Paul is named Saul, and he is the most vicious accuser of the brethren that is out there right now. In fact, he is so vicious that they're going to give Saul letters that gives him permission to go anywhere he wants to in the country and persecute and shut this church Christianity thing down. But he sits and listens to Stephen's message in chapter 7. And it cuts him to the heart, so much so that he becomes extremely violent towards all of them. And that's usually how it goes. When people hear the gospel for the first time, and they hear and they're convicted about their sin, 
become angry with the message or the messenger, actually. But Stephen is willing to, at his first sermon, as far as we know, he gets martyred. But in his martyrdom and in his faithfulness to do what God's called him to do, even in the pit as they're throwing rocks at him, he saves somebody else that Satan didn't think was going to go down like that, because that's who's in charge of the stoning is Satan. He gets this Saul guy convicted to the point where he's ready to receive from Jesus Christ the gospel, get saved, and write most of the New Testament for us, and to be an absolute, unstoppable, Holy Spirit-filled force for God. Somebody had to be Billy Graham's Sunday school teacher, right? Somebody had to come and teach Sunday school, whether they felt like it or not, because little Billy was waiting for him, you know? And they took the punches, and they stepped in, and... What a reward. As they get up into heaven, they say, who's that? Why is everybody excited about that old lady over there? That's Billy Graham's. Billy, you know, I'm sure that's not how it goes down, but I don't know. I don't know who we have back there. I don't know who I have in here. All I know is he wants to use all of us. And anybody that will answer that call like Stephen, here I am, Lord, use me. He'll use you. He will definitely use you, fill you with his spirit. You stay humble. You don't look for anything other than what he's given you that day. It's not a stepping stone. Oh, once you start thinking those are stepping stones, that's when you fall. That's when you can't be used anymore. He'll use you. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Stephen. Thank you for you. I mean, honestly, Lord, we know that. Stephen is who he is because of what you did for him. Stephen's just grateful. Because he's grateful and humble and understands his place and his position with you, that you're his king, that you're his Lord, that you're his savior, you can use that. So we want to take that same position as Stephen tonight. We don't care how you use us. We just want to be used to bring you glory. We want to bring you recognition, not ourselves. We don't want our names out there. We want your name out there. We don't want to be served. We want to serve. So God, help us to make ourselves available for that to let you come in and fill us with your spirit, gift us with all the giftings that you, that whatever you want, for whatever task you've got for us, whatever good work you have for us to walk in, Lord, we want to be thoroughly equipped by you. And so, Lord, I guess tonight we say, yes, yes, we want to be the ones. We want to, we want to be used by you. So I thank you for these people. Bless them as they go. Bless the kids who heard your word. Bless the Sunday school teachers and we took the time to teach him tonight and got him prepared and got their uh, photocopies made and, and, and got their lesson plans all together. And there was, they had a day too. And yet they went through their day, they took the punches and they got ready for these kids and they're sharing the love of Christ with them. And I thank you for them. I pray that you continue to fill them with your spirit and, and uh, refresh them. Give them times of refreshing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you need any prayer before you go, please come up. Be glad to pray with you. Otherwise, have a good rest of the week.